2 Samuel chapter 7, and I think you'll be able to find it somewhere around page 258 or 257 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. And you'll want God's Word open up as we uh, do study this morning. It's a beautiful time of year in New England as uh, we can look outside and appreciate it. Of course, it's just the, um, the unfortunate thing is that it's a, it's a short season. And uh, it's a sweet season, but it's a short-lived one. And we're at a particular turn and a place in the history of Israel, as was recorded for us in Samuel. We're here finding a, a sweet season for the people of God. The reason that this is a, a sweet and significant season uh, for the people of God uh, is because David is enthroned. David is the, the new king, uh, the king of God's choosing, not the people's choosing. He's united now at this point, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And he's brought them together in the city that is to be named Zion, the city of David, Jerusalem. Jerusalem would now be uh, the, the central place for the people of God, Israel. This newly appointed King David um, has named it uh, Zion, the city of David. And at the center of, of Jerusalem, he wants his kingdom to be, to be centered on what? What is the significant thing at the very center of Jerusalem? Well, I can tell you it's not uh, a statue of David uh, it's, uh, at all. Uh, it's actually uh, the tabernacle. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more, which is the tent or the, the shrine of the tent or the tent of, of meeting, God's meeting with his people. Uh, inside of that tent of, of meeting, the tabernacle, is what? What is it? The Ark. Thank you very much. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Testimony. We talked about its significance, its, its, its power last week because it is a, it is a uh, manifestation, a, a symbolic representation of the presence of God, His promise, His provision, His protection for the people. There are things inside of that Ark, like the manna, which is significant of His uh, provision as they wandered through the desert and made their way to the land which He promised to them uniquely. Uh, there are other things inside of there. Atop the, the Ark of the Covenant, we talked about last week, are cherubim, these winged creatures uh, that are, are touching wings. And in the center, we call it the mercy seat, uh, where God would uniquely, uh, in, in a way uh, mysterious to us, manifest part of his voice and presence. And God had very particular rules about the handling of this holy, sacred Ark, uh, which is, uh, is recorded. And we talked about that last week. There's an Old Testament scholar, uh, Walt Kaiser, who tells the story. I know I've kind of worn you guys out on stories of the British monarchy, but here's another European monarch that I just highlight as a reference point, and that is the French monarchy. There was uh, uh, one Louis, uh, King Louis XIV, the longest-standing European monarch, even longer than Elizabeth II, because he became king when he was four years old and reigned over 70 uh, years as the king of France. Uh, he requested upon, uh, you know, I, I don't know when in preparation for his death, he requested that when he would be buried in his funeral, that they would have it, of course, at the cathedral of Notre Dame. And uh, the request was that it would be utterly and completely dark inside of the, uh, the cathedral. The only light that was to be in the cathedral was to be a candle, a single candle that uh, King Louis wanted to be had on the very top of his casket at the very front uh, of, the, of the, the ceremony. However, the court preacher, uh, Massian, decided at the beginning of his message to go over to the casket and he snuffed out the candle. And this is what he said. He said it in Latin, but the translation is this. Only God is great. Only God is great. King David knew that very 
well. We, we saw that even last week when David, he's not dressed in his royal uh, you know, crown or, or robe or anything of that nature. He's just like the commoners last week, dancing before the Lord, like a man who is just in love with God. And like one of the commoners, it, it, it impacted his wife. She didn't like that. But he was just, I'm one of the servants of God to worship the living God. He is the most important. So we welcome, of course, we know that David's heart is reflected not only in a story, but also in song, because of the, the Psalter is largely written by David, who had this heart for God. And then we welcome that, that reality, this sweet season in the life of Israel, where they have unity and they have peace from war and rest from all of their battles. And King David is there. And it's a great contrast, of course, to what we experienced and knew of King Saul, the people's choice, the first king of Israel, whose heart was not and whose worship was not aligned. He had left the the Ark of the Covenant. Now David has brought it back into the center of the city and to the central of the life of Israel, their worship. Let me invite you to stand as we're going to read now God's word. These opening verses, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Hear this. This is the word of God. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given uh, that the Lord had given him from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, well, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But that same night, verse four, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought you up from the people of Israel and from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I've commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar now? Therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from you from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in your own place and be Disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I have appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish The throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Whenever he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. I took it from Saul when I put away, when I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established. Forever, in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. You may be seated. This is God's word. Let's ask for God's help. Father, would you be pleased? Uh, Even now we ask that you would send, Father, your spirit. Uh, We want to have the diligence of mind to study. We also want the reliance of faith by your spirit. As we reflect now on your precious 
word, your self-revelation, would it please bear fruit in our lives for Christ's sake. It's in his name we ask. Amen. What's the first thing a typical person would do with a fine piece of artwork? Or, or maybe, maybe it's a, a nice family portrait. What's the first thing that a typical person would do? Well, they would go and, and, and find a frame or have it framed and have it made out to, uh, to work on a wall in their house uh, or wherever they have it hanging. I, I, I don't know where I was uh, recently, within the last week or so, uh, an elderly woman said to me, you know, you just can't find people who make custom frames anymore. Uh, you know what? I, you're right. I, I, actually, I thought of it. Though. There's one right here. You can almost see it on 139 that actually has a, a frame shot. But it really is, it's an art. It, it, it takes time. I, I distinctly remember as a, as a middle school or high school boy at different points riding with my mom over to Merriman Galleries where they would go and there was someone who would have this custom-made frame. If you would have you know, mat or maybe multiple mats and then my mom would say, I, I like this, you know, the oak to be stained to match this and and then the, the picture would be there. The glass would be cut to fit it. I always was surprised that on the back too that they would, you know, they would place that nice paper over it and, and put the little hooks and whatever you needed to, to, you know, to suspend it on the wall. It, it, takes, it takes work. It takes custom work. And a good frame, a good frame or framework, which is what it is, that frame, it, it has a purpose. And, and, and while it might be a frame that has a mat that's maybe using a color to try to draw it in or match something in the room, ultimately, a good frame, framework, is used to bring attention to the picture, to the art. And in this particular chapter, we have one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, frankly, honestly. In fact, I, I got so into the study of it, I thought there's no way I can do this whole chapter in one week. So I'm going to do it in two parts. We're going to discuss the first 17 verses and then we'll look at the next beginning of verse 18, the following Lord's Day. The artwork, what is it? What's at the center, right? Well, there's the, the, the throne, the king, there's, there's, the, there's the tabernacle. There's a vision that David has of a, of a temple that's not yet to be. There's all of this that's going on in this picture in the frame of this covenant the the mat so to speak around it is covenant we talk about covenant as a bond or a pledge it's something that is um is a way of 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 promise and really the what's on display is the the character of god in those pictures and those symbols and those institutions it's the artwork it's 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 pointing from creation all the way to consummation the framework is built, uh, like I said, on this Ark of the Covenant theme and the, the commitment of, not the Ark, but the, but the covenant that it's uh, conveying. And like any good uh, frame, the art is the main focus. But there are times when you come upon a piece of artwork that is so remarkable, that is so stunning and impressive that you don't just think about the artwork. You think, who is it that made this who is the artist? We are the people of God. We are his handiwork, his workmanship created in Christ for good works that we might testify, that we might glorify the God who made us in his image. He, he's the artist. So whether we make art or whether we live as his image bearers, he is ultimately the artist. King David here 
just two points. I don't have them listed, so that was, that was when I was planning to do the whole chapter. Here's how I want to divide it. Just two things, two headings. David's construction and Yahweh's correction. David's construction. We see here in these opening three verses. You might recall in the previous, excuse me, two previous chapters in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we see that David has taken the throne and as a gift, as an expression uh, of appreciation for him and to celebrate, it is mentioned in chapter 5 that Hiram, the king of Tyre, uh, adjacent uh, group, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David, King David, a house. And it says there, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of David. No, it didn't say that. It said for the sake of God's people, Israel. That's why David is lifted up. Who doesn't like the smell of cedar, right? I remember I was in, I was in high school and I, just, I, I persuaded my parents to let me buy, literally buy planks of cedar to, to line the walls, one wall in my closet where my clothes were because I love, love, love the smell of cedar. In those days, in the ancient Near East, that would have been the equivalent of, of, uh, of luxury. Really, that would have been the, the best thing that you possibly could build out of as far as material and wood in particular. Cedar would have been a prized, luxurious thing. And so David is, is here. And there's sure, there's, there's unity now. And David is not having to battle against enemies. God is giving them a season of rest. And this, I guess, in his idle time, he's got this new idea for a construction uh, project. David says in verse 2, let me paraphrase, it's, you know, this isn't right, right? I, I, I'm living here in opulence in this wonderful palace that someone has built for me. And lo and behold, look over there. I have these cedars and there are only these curtains for a tent that is the tabernacle. That's where the ark of God, his sacred uh, presence represented. It shouldn't be that way. And, uh, and, and yes, the, the tabernacle, the, the, the shrine of tent, the, you know, it was elaborate and there was great detail put into the construction of it. But it wasn't a permanent place. It wasn't a, a palace. It wasn't a temple. So David, uh, his good friend, his prophetic voice uh, there, uh, Nathan impulsively says, sure, if you want to do it, you know, set your heart to it. You know, good job. Way to go. A, a survey, of course, of, of uh, ancient Near Eastern kings and and literature and history would, 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 would say to us, this is a common thing, right? The, the king would say, okay, well, whatever deity or plural deities that we serve as a nation, we're going to set up a shrine. We're going to set up a, you know, a, a special place so that the gods would you know, be indebted to us and we would gain favor and we would gain victory in war. So we're going to negotiate this. We'll build this great, you know, whatever, this edifice, this shrine or temple, this house of worship, in the hopes that God would, would show his favor upon us. And, and that's not what David is doing here. David knows that it was the favor. The favor of God isn't contingent upon us doing things for God. God chose his people out of the least of all the nations already setting his love and his favor upon them. Yahweh is the divine king, not David, Yahweh is the divine king, and David knows that Yahweh is a God of grace and mercy who promised favor to his people. But it was by grace alone that they were uh, part of that covenant, that they were enjoying the blessings of the covenant, that they were to be a grateful people in response. God is not, the true and living God is under no circumstance impressed 
or managed or obliged or indebted to human sacrifice or work or, or, or merit. It's not that way at all. I mean, nevertheless, God, at least at this stage, is not interested in having a temple built. That will come later. But for now, he's declining the offer. Someday there will be one, Solomon, the, the son of David. But this is, you know, this is a long ways off till there will be a, an actual temple. Plus, unlike other, you know, false uh, gods, little g, you know, deities of other nations, the true and the living God can't be contained in the house anyway. And that was one of the things that was commendable about Solomon and his wisdom because it's recorded for us uh, in, in 1 Kings chapter 8 that Solomon, after he built the temple, eventually it says the heavens, meaning the skies, even the highest of heavens out there in the expanse of the stars, he, he says, those cannot contain you, God. How much less this temple that I have built for you. So God's saying, scratch the project. And, and this is where beginning in verse 4 through 17, we see uh, God's perspective. God's take this, his correction on the plan. Nathan was mistaken. Uh, he's corrected beginning in verse 4 with a dream, a vision that he gives. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, pass this on to King David, my servant. He commissions him to say, thanks, but no thanks. Let's read it again in verse 5 and 7. When I, I, I'll admit, when I read it this past week, I thought, what, what's the tone, right? What is God saying? Let's read it again, verse 5, God's response. He says, I go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this very day. So we're talking, you know, hundreds of like 300 years, right, that God's been this way. God's highlighting the fact, but... I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling and all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel. Did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I've commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I'll be honest. I read this and I thought, well, well what's the tone here? Is God saying this like, yeah, it's about time or, hey, I'm a little bit bitter or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you should be saying this right now. But that's not, that's not the tone. The tone is, I never said to do that. That's not been part of my plan. This is an actual window into the humility of God. I remember a high school uh, teammate of mine one time said, I'm not proud, I'm just that good. Okay, that might have been my inner self speaking to myself, but you get the point, right? Like if you're that great, yeah, get, God can't be proud. He's God. It's, it's, it's entirely legit. But can God be humble? And the answer is yes. Yes, yes. And if you don't believe me, I'm coming back to this theme, so bear with me. Notice how God, even in, in the, the way that he describes it to Nathan to pass on to David, let me change the pronouns, right? Because David's saying, I'm going to do this, and then, and then you, God, have, will have this. And God says in verse 8, no, it's, we're going to turn this around. Let's look at it again. Verse 8 and 9. I've not lived in a house. Excuse me. That's verse 6. Now, verse 8. Therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make uh, for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. So he's, he's really, he's taking David's plan, he's taking David's perspective, and he's flipping it 
David has been uh, focused on what David might do for God. And God's saying, well, actually, David, uh, I'm going to be focused right now on what I've done for you. I've been the one who has been a pilgrim. Notice the verbs here. I took you. I've, I'm the one who has cut off your enemies. I'm the one who will make your name great. God is saying, uh, David, look, I'm making you great for the sake of my people. Pretty clearly there, verse 10, so that they might have rest and may not be uh, disturbed. God had already made a covenant, a promise with Abram, later Abraham, that he would be their God and they would be his people and they would be uh, enjoying his, his pleasure because of the covenant that God bound himself to them, a pledge that he himself would be fulfilling. And David is part of that fulfillment. This is, this is, God's, this is God's covenant expanding and, 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 and rising up in such a way. I remember when uh, I was in college uh, some of the some of the guys that were part of the college ministry that we were part of every once in a while, you know, when couples would start to kind of, you know, pair off and and start to show interest and there's romance and there's affections and there's interest. And so and so I think I think he asked me out. I would say, look, man, uh, have you had a DTR? So what's a DTR? You know, a DTR talk, a define the relationship talk. Let's let's. Let's, let's get our expectations out there. Where, who are we? Where do we stand? What's the nature of this relationship? Well, God's saying it's time for us to have a DTR. David, it's not what you're doing for me. It's the covenant that I'm going to make with you. With you. I'm the covenant. I'm the promise-making, promise-keeping God. I'm promising and fulfilling it's all about my love for you and for my people. I mean, it's pretty staggering to think about the love of God and the humility of God. Because it is humility. Because it is for God in all of his greatness and all of his majesty, power, dominion, and, and perfection. His holiness set apart that he would communicate with humanity. That he would seek to relate to us. And to his people, to make a people, to adopt a people for his own. These are all to, to, then, to then grant to them promises that he would bind himself to is an act of condescension. The people couldn't understand God. God said, I'll put it in a form of a, of a human covenant so you can have a, a little bit of an idea of what this is all about. But the fact is God wants to dwell with his people. And that's a beautiful reality. Back here in verse 7 and 8, he's saying, my people were pilgrims, my people were wanderers, and I made myself homeless so that I could be with you. All along the way, his presence and his promise. God is in essence saying, I'm going to be homeless. And that's certainly true of the new covenant and the mediator of that new covenant that we talked about in the Heidelberg Catechism, namely Christ. What does it say? What does it say? Twice in the Gospels, it accounts for this. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, Luke 5, Jesus says, Luke 9, says the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. God the Son left the glories of the praise of heaven. And God the Son took on flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, took on the form of a man and has dwelt among us. 
In fact, when we read it, we probably will in a little over a month. When we come uh, to the, the readings building up towards Christmas, we see the, the prophetic voice. Right? We see, we see this, these testimonies of, of, of God. We'll probably read John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what does it testify there of John 1? He was in the beginning with God, the Logos, the Word. The Logos was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is really key. Hear, hear this, if you, if, you, if you would. Verse 14, and it says this, And the word of God became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And that verb, that word right there, dwelt, in the original, means, translated, he tabernacled among us. The word of God, the, the son of God made flesh, tabernacled among us. He has dwelled. It's a beautiful picture. Remember the frame. It's, it's being established. You see the ark. You see the kingship. You see the tabernacle. And it's all pointing to the artist, the creator, the redeemer, King Jesus. Maybe you, you can see, we, we do t- tend to think of it this way, that the law of God is something we must do it, it, it hinders us. It, 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 it restricts us. But the law of God is a gift because it's partly a reflection of his very character. Isn't it a beautiful thing, especially when it's really hard? You think about this. People in your life, that you, it stands out to you when they, when they show something of kindness and obedience, right? Or, 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 or uh, things like integrity, right? When you see someone who is... Even when it was very, very difficult and hard, and we know that, that they speak the truth. It's a beautiful thing because it's a reflection, right, of the very character of God. God's like that. God is a God of truth, telling, promise, keeping. God is faithful. A promise, a powerful example of faithfulness I may have told this story before, is Dr. Robertson McQuilkin. He was already a thriving teacher. Uh, he lived in South Carolina. This is, you know, I don't, I don't know how many years ago, maybe 50 years ago. He was a teacher. He was a scholar. He became the president of a college and a seminary. His wife, Muriel, married for, for several years, she began to suffer with Alzheimer's. And as the disease progressed, um, at times... Her anxiety, uh, she, her, her fears, she couldn't be happy ever. And the only time that she had any semblance of, of happiness is when her husband, when Robertson was with her. And so he resigned his post. And everyone was surprised. And he became her full-time caretaker around the clock. I'm sure many people thought, well, you know, he could make a better, you know, better, a bigger impact if he were to stay in the role and, you know, carry. No, this is what he needed to do. You can read about his experience and his great love and affection for his wife in a book that he wrote called A Promise Kept. A Promise Kept. His love was not self-seeking. It was humble. It was not easy. 
He even reflects on the fact that in the early years of his marriage, he was so self-assured and, and proud that he, you know, he, was, he wouldn't even let his wife be right sometimes. But God was changing him. And at this season, he knew that the best thing to do was to lay down his plans to serve his wife. That's a reflection of God. When the redeemed people of God, empowered by the love and gospel of Jesus, live out as image bear, redeemed image bearers. God has loved us. He's pursued us. He has preserved his people, his covenant people. And God didn't do this when we behaved well. He didn't do this when he said, oh, thank you for setting that up. And thank you for being so wonderful. And you're so attentive to my law. And you're so fill in the blank. It's not on account of that. It has been on account of his mercy that he has pursued and granted to us his favor Quite the contrary, God's gracious covenant of faithfulness is often pursuing us and preserving us when we're cold, when we're distant, unwilling, un- unresponsive. And he has come down. And I don't know if you caught the play on words, but he's kind of like this, right? He says, hey, David, I know you said you want to build me a house. And we're not going to do that just yet. I'm going to build you, David, a house. Play on words. Did you get it? He's thinking, I'm going to build you, David, I'm going to build you a a structure, a shrine, a temple. I'm going to build something out of cedar, fill in the blank. God says, no, 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 David, I'm going to build you a house, meaning a dynasty, a household where your descendants will carry on this kingdom, that the promise will be for them, that the promise would carry down all the way through generations. And then he says, and and your son will carry that on, even though he's going to be a a knucklehead, for, for lack of better Hebrew terms. Uh, he just says, I know that Solomon's not going to, he, he's going to have iniquity, but I, it doesn't matter about sin. Sin can't break my promise. I'm faithful. Generation after generation, the descendants of the line of Judah, the house of David, would carry on in, his, in, in that royal line, eventually would come a Messiah. That's the promise. That's how he can say, David, look at it. It's verse 13 and in verse 16. Three times we see in your house, verse 16, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Three times he says the word forever. It will be established before me. Your throne shall be established. Again, he says it forever. Does that sound familiar? It should, if you listen to Handel's Messiah. His kingdom shall reign forever and ever and ever. So maybe you thought that this was something for the Hebrews. Maybe you thought this was for the Israelites. And I'm just reminding you and me and all of us here that the promise is for us. The church, the people of God, the new covenant community because of that Messiah. Leonardo Leonardo da Vinci once says there's three classes of people. There's those who see. There's those who see when they're shown. And there's those who do not see. There's those who see. Those are those who are shown and then see. And then there are people who just will never see. I don't know exactly the context. I don't know. Maybe he's applying that to, you know, the, 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 the flat earth people. I, I, I.
Where, where are you with respect to the artist and the artistry of what God has put together in the king, in the tabernacle, in the temple, the covenant, the framework? Friends, we are beneficiaries of this covenant. And if you know the love of God and if you're united to Christ through repentance and faith, then you will have Christ is your king and rest for your soul and security for all eternity. That's not possible, of course, with David. It's not possible with Solomon. It's not, it's not possible later on with other kings, some really, really bad, some really, really good like Josiah. But all of them were just men. But the God-man conquers death. He's raised from the... David's greater son, King Jesus, is the Messiah who lives and reigns, who's defeated death. He's conquered it. He is alive. <coughs> when Jesus is challenged by the religious leaders of the day for talking like that, acting like that, Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew 26, this man says, this man says testifying against Jesus, I'm able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. And the priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make pointing at Jesus? What is this that men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. How does Jesus say, you tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days? He's saying, I am the temple. I am the temple and our future home to you and to me, I say, as followers of Christ is so secure. It's so much greater than anything David could have constructed in Zion. In the new city, in the new Jerusalem, yeah, King David brought peace for a season and God did that through him. Thanks be to God. But there was a day and there is a day coming when God will establish a new Jerusalem, gates upon gates upon gates, and none of them need to be closed because the city is secure. I love the imagery. John in his vision in Revelation 21, it says, and I saw no temple. In the city, the new Jerusalem, there was no temple for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb and the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. How can it be an eternal kingdom? Except that the lamb is risen. He's defeated death. That's reason for rejoicing. And a lot of the application that we're going to see out of this and in response to this, because it doesn't just leave you like, oh, well, that's nice. You know, there is a response to this. And I want to get into that. We see it beginning in verse 18 next week with King David. Let me pray for us as we pause. Father, we do ask that you please help us to see. And for anyone here who can't, 
pray that you'd give them the eyes of faith that we might see and perceive the precious promises, the the divine realities, the, the beauty of your sacrifice and love and the person and work of Jesus. We need the eyes of faith. And even as we talk now to you, what a gift that you would condescend, that you would make yourself known to us, that you would give us a, a, a scripture, a revelation in our own in our own language. Thank you, God, for these gifts. Thank you, God, for your unshakable love, your eternal covenant, your faithfulness to that covenant and promises in ways that we never can be faithful. Would you forgive us, Lord, for setting aside your covenant, for not cherishing and prizing the things of of your will and your wisdom? Help us not to be overwhelmed by our failures and discouraged. Lord, help us to not focus on just our sin, but on the greatness of our Savior. Help us to fix our eyes on your glory and your grace. Whether we're in a season of suffering or waiting, some of us feel that way. Season of unrest, lots of uncertainties. Lord, we chafe at that. We are not in control. We're grateful that King Jesus is. Please make us more like him. Even now as we pray in his name and as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, our Father.